Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Danny and Mara Kofed, welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. How are you guys today? We're so good, thank you. We're so good, thank you. Yeah, so happy, happy to be here. We uh, we're just sitting at our table here in Cuenca, Ecuador. We're on a sabbatical from Brooklyn, uh, and yeah, we're just so delighted to chat with you. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that. With with everything that's going on in Mormonism, I've I've been speaking lately about wanting to do some kind of sabbatical just to get away and do something and just just kind of take my mind off all that's going on and kind of looking forward to your guys' thoughts tonight. Um, we've got a common uh, couple of friends who who have put me in contact with, with the both of you and just said, you've got to talk to these two. And I'm so excited to sit down with the both of you and, and wondered first if maybe you would give our listeners just kind of a feel for who you are and, and maybe just share kind of a, a brief bio about yourselves. Yeah, uh, great. Uh, so my name's Danny Kofit. I, I, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, you know, served a, served a mission in, in Brazil, uh, Manaus and eventually graduated from Brigham Young University with a master's in accounting. And I, you know, I, I kind of did the accounting thing for a little while and eventually, uh, moved out to Boston, then New York, and now here. And I do nothing even close to accounting anymore, which is kind of great. <laughs> so, but yeah. So I grew up in Arizona and I later moved to New York in my twenties and I, I stayed there for 14 years. Um, I feel like I grew up again in New York because I learned so much while I was there and it, it's, it just, I feel like I've just had the most extraordinary life I could imagine. Um, and I, yeah, I, I've been in and out of the church at different times in my life. Um, so I, I know we'll get into that some more, but I, I love the Mormon church and, and I'm so thankful for all that I've learned from it. And, and yeah, my, my spiritual journey, um, currently has taken me away from it, but I, yeah, I'm excited to chat with you tonight about that. So <laughs> awesome. And Mara, maybe we can start with you. Would you mind maybe just running us through, uh, you know, growing up and, and, to the point where you kind of do end up outside the faith and, and maybe kind of bring us up to speed to what brings you to maybe where the place that you're at today. Sure. Um, so I did grow up in the church. I have a very Orthodox Mormon family. Um, and I, I did not resonate with the church when I was young. I, I remember even being a beehive and, and just being um, in turmoil because the testimony was not working for me. The the Mormon model, the the Mormon um, model of just praying 
and then getting the warm fuzzy or getting some sign or feeling, you know, that, you know, the church is true and like all of the church is true. Um, that just didn't work for me. And it, it was excruciating. Um, I remember just weeping, weeping as a child um, at my bed, just weeping to God, begging for this testimony, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just horrible when I think about it. Um, and so at age 18, I was uh, graduating from a, a big Mormon uh, or a school. a school with a lot of Mormons. And they wanted me to be one of the keynotes at the seminary graduation. And I, I actually told them, no, I, I couldn't do it. Um, and I just, I didn't have a testimony. I, I just didn't feel like I could, uh, fake that I had one. Um, and I guess I had been faking it pretty well up until that point. Um, and so at age 18, I, I stopped going to church. Um, and that lasted for five years. Um, I ended up going to New York, um, at that time. And, and I did reconnect with, um, Mormonism at that time. Mostly I was just looking for a community in New York and the singles ward at Lincoln Center. You know, it was like a, a great way to meet people. Um, and so, um, I, I did, uh, get married. Uh, I did get married in the temple a year after my civil marriage. And I, we attended, um, we attended church in Brooklyn, which is, Fantastic. The That's ward there community. is absolutely incredible. Um, and, and I felt so connected to the people and, um, but spiritually still, I wasn't totally connected, wasn't all in. Um, and it was later after many, many years of infertility and, and a, a marriage that began to basic, basically just like crumble. Um, it was, you know, you know, looking like a divorce was on its way. Um, um, somewhere in there, I met a spiritual mentor. Uh, she is not a member of the church. She, uh, she is like a spiritual healer, um, in Manhattan. And she specifically works with women who were infertile. And so I was going to her because of this infertility. And it turns out I came out with a complete transformation. <laughs> A complete spiritual awakening. It was like the biggest miracle of my life. A um, different kind of birth occurred. <laughs> it was, yes, absolutely. And so I met her and she opened my eyes to, um, to spirituality. And she, she, she told me that I was a spiritual woman and that I was one of the most spiritual women she had ever met. Um, because I was a very good student and was soaking up and, you know, soaking up everything that she said and, and understanding it deeply. And, um, and that was the first time that I ever considered myself as a spiritual person. I thought I, I thought I had completely failed at that. Um, and you know, I had failed at the Mormon model, but what I didn't know was that there was a whole wide world out there, a whole, um, you know, so many different options, so many different ways to live a spiritual life. And, so um it was just amazing to me just an absolute miracle to me that I that I had that awakening that I I learned that there was more out there that I could be spiritual in my own way and I've been on a spiritual path ever since it's been about 10 years maybe a little more and um and it's been absolutely extraordinary 
I have, I've loved it. I have felt peace and happiness over and over in my life, despite many trials, despite a divorce, which came a year later, despite infertility that is now going on year 12, I think. Yeah. Um, and despite many challenges with, you know, jobs or living in New York. Um, anyway, you know, I, I've tapped into a spiritual practice and it has worked for me again and again and again. And I can't shut up about it um, because I, <laughs> I started this blog called the blog about love and I share my experiences and, and just try to help and inspire other people along the way. So, yeah. And I want to ask you a little bit about that. So as a, as a Latter-day Saint who, who had both feed in for a long, long time and the church kind of prescribes the way in which we, we make this connection with the divine, right? We, we get in a, you know, we kneel down next to our bed or we kneel down with our families and we fold our arms a certain way and, and we say our prayers a certain way. And, and what I've found in my own spirituality is there's come times where those things, while still beneficial, they weren't nourishing me like they once did. And, and I think Mormons or even just Christians in general, when we're raised a certain way, we're hesitant to seek out the divine in in avenues that are not prescribed by the church. There's kind of a hesitation or a fear of doing it in some way that the church hasn't authorized us to do it. Did How did you overcome that? I mean, there had to have been some hesitancy at first. What was your thoughts as you kind of first delved into finding spiritual avenues outside of the prescribed methods the church gives? You know, I, I wasn't afraid at all. I, I welcomed it. I had tried so many, so many things within the church and, and it just nothing, uh, connected with me. I, you know, the Book of Mormon or, you know, uh, praying to God or, you know, just trying to rely on the spirit. Um, while these things are beautiful, by the way, these are beautiful and I, and I know that many, many people do find great connection to God, um, in those avenues. But, but for me, it just was not coming together. So I, I had no fear or no hesitation to try other things. Um, yeah, I, I, I was desperate. I was, um, um, I, I was at a point in my life when, um, I literally had had enough of being miserable. I had zero self-worth. I felt like I, I did not know how to be happy, how to be comfortable in my own skin. Um, I, uh, felt like you were the walking dead is what I've yes, often heard you say. I remember walking around, New York. walking around New York, feeling like I might just fall over and die of grief, um, because of, you know, the pain that I was in in my life with, my marriage with infertility. Um, anyway, I just, I just absolutely ready to try anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I became so desperate. I, I had tried lots of things, but yeah. I, I guess I didn't give up. I just kept trying to, to find peace. I remember at one point thinking though, I don't think I will ever learn how to be happy because I had tried so many things. Hmm. Um, and so anyway, yeah, it was a miracle to me to, to find something that did work for me. And, uh, and I welcomed it. There was, <laughs> there was a no fear, you yeah. know. 
Right, right. That may be the secret then is just to have gotten so, uh, maybe this isn't the right word, but burned out in the other avenues and so desperate for something to work yeah. that you're willing to try other things. And, yeah. and I felt some of that in my own life mm-hmm. recently where I've said, okay, I've, I'm open to doing other things. And I had a couple of good friends come in uh, a couple of weeks ago and just said, Hey, Bill, you got to start doing some more self care. You're, yeah. you're doing this podcast and you're trying to essentially carry the burdens of others and help them out. And, at some point you have to take a break. And so they spent a night with me. We just, we just went in my bedroom and, and kind of turned the lights down and just had some meditation and, mm-hmm. and some like Navajo music playing. It was just okay. really cool. And it was a, it was a whole new way of doing that. Good. Um, so anyway, I just appreciate you even bringing that perspective to the table. I hope, I hope the listeners who most of this audience is made up of Latter-day Saints who, who are really struggling as they move through this kind of faith transition, for them to hear you saying, Hey, these things are okay. I think it's going to be the, that, that final drop in the bucket to pushing them to do some of this. Um, Danny, your thoughts, uh, kind of running us through maybe, uh, your story and, and kind of bring us up to speed. And then we can kind of maybe talk about the blog and, and some of the things you guys are doing. Yeah. So Mar and I have ended up kind of having a very different experience when it came to our childhood experience of spirituality and God and connecting to Mormonism. And for me, it actually, the first real thing that happened for me, I loved church going, you know, back in the day. And, and I definitely had a lot of experiences with kind of what I'd now call warm fuzzies and what I then called the Holy Ghost. But when I was 16 years old, um, I, I was kind of in an interesting position in, in life. I, despite growing up in Utah, my best friends, not one of them was LDS. And, uh, and that was really great until we got to high school. And I ended up making a decision when we got to high school and there were things that they were kind of going in a different direction to, I ended up making a decision to kind of remove myself from that. And it meant spending a lot of time alone during my sophomore year. And, uh, it was during one of those really lonely nights that this totally random opportunity for service uh, to a complete stranger came. I was going to say knocking at my door, but it was literally ringing on my telephone and responding to that. For some reason, uh, I had to this date one of my most profound spiritual experiences, and it was the first time that I really connected deeply with the supernatural and was washed over head to toe in this overwhelming force of love. And it, and it really didn't match whatever I'd just done. What I'd done was actually very small and it just came from completely outside of myself. And when that happened, I remember saying to myself, if that's the Holy Ghost, if that's the thing that they keep talking about, I want more of it. And that, that night actually was the first night I began reading my scriptures. Uh, every single night. And, and it was the first night that I really started praying sincerely because I wanted to connect back to that. And so, you know, my, for the rest of my teenage years, uh, the Mormon church played a, a big part and, and a fulfilling part in my life. And I served a mission in Brazil, uh, which ended up being another wonderful spiritual awakening. That's where I connected with the scriptures uh, more than any time in my life. It was, it was exhilarating. And, and I felt like I came to know God again and, you know, I, I ended up having a, a third awakening, and it's kind of a little bit like Mara's uh, described. Um, adversity brought on brought on the last awakening, which has been really important to me. And I got married um, shortly after leaving uh, or graduating from BYU. And 
Uh, in our third year of marriage, my, my wife had uh, confessed that she'd been unfaithful. And uh, learning how to deal with that kind of confession and then the subsequent separation, divorce, all that process, that was the first time that I had to deeply apply the gospel message and learn how to find peace right in the middle of what I was experiencing. And it happened. It totally happened. And, uh, and as a result, um, uh, my connection to God just kept on growing. And, and I remember at first, when it first happened, I actually had a really difficult time because I suddenly found all these little euphemisms that Mormons say all the time that I suddenly found very distasteful. There was a small moment of discouragement in how the Mormon church talked about spirituality because I was experiencing something so deep, so real, so not based on circumstance, which sometimes Mormons think that circumstances are an example of God blessing you or something like that. And here I was receiving peace from God entirely separate from circumstance while my life is crumbling. And I got really frustrated with the church for a while. But then as I continued to study and talk with friends and, and a wonderful mother, um, that process, you know, it actually led me deeper into the beauty of the gospel. And, and to this day, I remain, you know, an active church member, um, but certainly not active and certainly not orthodox, I should say, in how I approach things. But uh, I love I love the message of, of the gospel and and uh, and it's it is it's a, a lifeblood in 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 how I approach things and and how Mara approaches things too despite um, despite not attending we we both view it very similarly. That's interesting. I do at least want to ask, and we don't have to spend much time on this, but the the idea of divorce within Mormonism and in what all that means for both of you. I, my, and here's what I'm asking for a lot of my listeners. They, they maybe go through these transitions alone. I think, I think how lucky in a way the two of you are to kind of both move to a place of not being an orthodox. A lot of my listeners have one spouse right. who is and, and they're not, and it, it puts a lot of stress. And so when divorces happen and they do, sometimes you become kind of an outsider in Mormonism. And I just wanted to get a thought from maybe the two of you on what your experience was like. Has that happened? Did your wards accept you? Did your wards reach out to you? Or was there kind of this colder feeling as you kind of enter this space where LDS theology kind of doesn't really have nice, happy explanations for you? You know, I had the most amazing experience, (laughs) like after my divorce and just before it, my ward in Brooklyn was so loving and so accepting. And, um, I, I remember, um, at one point, like, you know, when people first started finding out, I literally went for 30 days. I counted them 30 <laughs> days. I had offers of dinners. Um, uh, people were dropping off food. They were inviting me to the movies. Um, I, I literally couldn't keep up with it. It was, it was like exhilarating. It was unbelievable. Um, and, uh, so I, I experienced nothing but love. Um, but also I, I feel that I went into, uh, the experience with my, with my head held high. Yeah. 
Um, I think that's important. This, this idea that, oh, I was less than, or, oh, I, you know, I'm such a bad person, or, oh, um, you know, I should be ashamed. Um, that, that just wasn't where I was going to go. That, that was not what I wanted to align with. Um, and so I, I remember thinking, like, I actually, at one of those movie nights, um, I was sitting there with a woman who had just, um, lost her baby, um, who the baby had passed away. Another woman had melanoma. Another woman had been laying next to her 30 year old husband and he had a stroke. Um, another, I mean, another woman had just lost her father to after years of cancer. And so here we are, we were all sitting. These are just my close friends. And I had just been going through this divorce. And I, I just thought, you know, this is no different. Yeah. This is no different than any other trial. Like divorce is just, just one experience in life. Just like, I mean, everybody has some experience and, and divorce is not anything to be ashamed of. It's just a part of some people's lives. Yeah. If, if I were to add on to that, I, I would echo. You know, you talk about kind of the isolation and separation, and I don't doubt that people do experience that. I know people have experienced it. I would say in my case, the only way in which I experienced it was self-inflicted. Like Mara said, it's a for me as well, it was about holding my head high and being confident in, um, in belonging in the community and in not being damaged goods. In fact, Mm. I think for both Mara and I, it actually really helped that Divorce and from our infertility, um, this was the place where more than anything else in our lives, we discovered mm-hmm. true self-worth mm-hmm. and real identity. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more as the podcast goes on. But this trial was the place where we discovered exactly who we were mm-hmm. and we were grateful for it. And so the capacity to go into that chapel or into those relationships where you might feel like an outcast because you no longer fit the mold. You're no longer the, um, you're no longer living the Mormon dream. And in fact, you may have failed at it according to some people. And according to yourself, we didn't really feel that way. And I won't say that those thoughts weren't in my mind from time to time. I worried that other people would, would, uh, maybe withdraw from me that some future girl that I date is going to be, a little off put that I couldn't make something work or that her parents might be worried that she's dating a divorced guy. You never know. And so I did have thoughts like that. But the reality was I was so profoundly grateful for the experience that I had because that was where I learned how to love. That is where I learned who I was, how to connect to God consistently. And so I, I kind of, I knew I was bringing something good to the table and it, it let a lot of that shame fall. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, uh, infertility and divorce have just been sacred to me, uh, because I learned so much. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I, I almost felt, I don't know. I, I almost felt great. Yeah, I did. I felt grateful to have those experiences. Yeah. So I didn't walk into any room with my head down. It was like, Oh no. This this was one of the most um, pivotal moments of my life. You know, uh, the, I wouldn't trade this for anything, you know. And so I I have that feeling and that attitude. 
Um, every time I went on a date, you know, well, and it was the- like, oh yeah, I'm infertile and I'm divorced and I'm in my thirties. <laughs> and I, I, I was just, I felt proud of, of what I had learned, what I had become, what path I was on. And, um, I, I never worried about other people like, um, you know, if, if another, I think there were a few guys that were maybe a little uncomfortable with the fact that I was divorced. And I, to me, it was just like, oh, well, good. I'm glad I know that, <laughs> you know, right. it's like, okay, perfect. I guess, you know, this is not going to be the greatest match. You know, if you don't see the beauty in this, then that's okay. Yeah. And, and, uh, to give you an example, I think it's in the first or second email that Mara wrote me where she said something along the lines of, Hey, as far as I'm concerned, us divorced people are a hot commodity. <laughs> yeah. And she said, people at least know what I'm going to do when faced with adversity. You never know. You know, I, I've been through something and I've come out on top. That means, you know, so I, I just remember Mara booming with confidence <laughs> as opposed to the other, which is beautiful. Right, right. And, and not only do you both take these experiences and you're better for them, but without those, you likely never meet each other, oh, yeah. right? You never have the chance to find uh, somebody else that you just f- seem to be a perfect match with. Yeah. Yeah, so that's got to be amazing. Um, so the blog that you guys started, and feel free if there's something we're missing kind of in between this, but I want to get a th- your thoughts on, you know, what was going through your mind that, hey, we got to start this blog, or or did you guys start the blog together? Uh, we, we did, yeah. kind of. I... I'm a little crazier than my husband and I always got big ideas. I have crazy big ideas. Um, anyone who knows me in person knows that. And I think we all laugh about it. And, but, but anyway, I would always say to Danny, Oh gosh, we've got to share this stuff. We, we had just been living in such a peaceful way despite these, um, very challenging experiences. Uh, and I knew that you know, what Anybody we had to could share could, could be, um, anyway, I knew that it would be helpful to somebody out there. And so I would always nudge Danny and just say, Danny, we've got to do something like, what can we do? And writing a book just felt really overwhelming. And so, um, one night I just screwed around on, you know, on blogger.com and started this little blog and put some stuff out there and, um, and it was, we, we both participated a little more in the beginning later. Um, Danny, you know, had a job and wasn't able to do as much. So I, I have done a lot of the blog. Yeah. Danny, um, Danny loves to respond to people in the comments and he loves to respond to emails that, that we've received. Um, so he, he kind of participates behind the scenes a lot in that way. And I'm a one-on-one guy. A lot of times, you know. Yeah, and he's written, um, you know, many posts as well. Um, but it's it's been absolutely extraordinary. We have loved the experience. Dan, yeah, I mean, the blog kind of was born out of this reality that uh, both of us, n- not looking for opportunities, but just because we'd had this authentic joy come to us, and then we met each other and we realized we weren't alone, and that these. When we met, we realized we'd followed the exact same principles and it was exhilarating because sometimes you feel, uh, you feel a little isolated and you wonder if you're a fluke. Um, but we, we'd begun talking with people. People at work would ask us. Some cousin would say, Hey, my friend is also going through this. 
do you mind talking to him and helping him? And we kept on doing this over and over again. And we were writing every time we were recreating the will and writing these long emails or going and having a conversation. And we both said, you know, we really need to put this out there so that anybody can get it. And so that it's always available and talk about big idea versus small idea. My idea was to have basically 20 or so essays that are really well written out and they just kind of statically stay there forever. And Mara's like, no way, man, we're starting a blog. And now it's gone on for, you know, four and a half years. Danny just put it all into a word doc recently and it was 10,000 pages. Um, but I would, I would just add that, um, you know, the principles that we've tried to live by have allowed this whole thing to happen because, um, we're not consumed with drama. We're not consumed with, you know, all like our energy is not being sucked dry every day by our own woes and our own drama in our marriage or in life. Like certainly we have things come up from yeah, time life's to time. Not easy. Life still comes up, but we, we have tools to deal with it. Um, and so the result is there is abundance. And um, so there's overflow um, of over. energy and love. Um, and the idea was like, we could just sit in our living room and enjoy this, or we could actually share this abundance with other people. Right, right. And I know that just in the couple of days here that you know, we've gotten to kind of talk a little bit, a couple little messages on Facebook back and forth. Already I've seen a listener or two from my podcast pipe up and go, hey, I've been reading this blog forever. It's good to see who these people are and and kind of get a feel for their journey. That's been kind of exciting to do. I, I do want to get a feel from you. What kind of things does the you know tell us about the blog? Tell us where we can find it. Tell us about some of the things that you guys discuss on there. Maybe give us kind of the the twenty thousand feet in the air view of of what some of these things are that if people want to know more, these things would be helpful to kind of getting recentered. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, I'll just start and say. Um. So the blog is called a blog about love. So it's a blog about love dot com, <laughs> and that name just came to us because the night before we launched. Yeah, because um, you know, really the guiding force of our lives is love. And that is how we've been able to experience peace and joy. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's, if I, if I were to give you the shortest version, the blog is about learning how to live a life motivated by love. And we're not talking about romantic ooey gooey, although that certainly is a part of it that I hope that forms a part of everybody's life in some form or another. But, uh, the love we're talking about is the kind that does allow you to go through something like infidelity or infertility and divorce and disappointment and everything that can happen in life and yet still find peace right in the middle of it. Uh, love is something in, for both of us. Love is something that when embodied creates a present moment experience of joy that is not tied to circumstance or the behavior of other people or for that matter, our own faults and weaknesses. And so the blog is about exploring that and helping people know that they can indeed find joy right in the middle of something going on, not after, not once it's over, um, but really right in the middle of it. Excellent. Do you guys want to maybe delve into maybe some of the specific principles? What I want to do is I want to tease the listener enough that 
that when this episode is over that, you know, 10,000 listeners are going to run off and check out your blog because as, as Latter-day Saints who are struggling, especially with what's happened over the last two weeks with this new policy, a lot of us are hurting and a lot of us feel burnt out. We feel kind of just numbed from everything. And, and there's nothing I think we want more than to just find some peace out there. And so I'm wondering maybe you can just tease us a little bit and share a few of the principles that, that you guys obviously go into detail in with all of this. Yeah, we'd love to. Um, so, uh, there's, there's one place where we always start every time we teach, every time we host a retreat. Um, every and, time we meet with somebody, uh, we, we love to zone in on identity. Um, so we all have these identities that we hold up on a pedestal. So it could be motherhood, for example. That's such a huge one for every woman. Especially it, if you're Mormon. Yes. It could be, um, a marriage. It could be the fact that you're a wife. That could be an identity and just the marriage could be an identity that desire to have a beautiful, loving marriage. Um, uh, also for a woman, our appearance is so huge. I mean, from the beginning of time, you know, <laughs> women have, have been valued for their appearance. And, and so, um, anyway, so that's a very, very huge identity for a lot of women. Um, and men have, everyone's got their own identities. Um, Mormon, you know, the religious identity is a huge, huge one. And, um, so anyway, what we, uh, teach is that, um, you know, everyone has these things that are, that are very important to them. And those are just the, the sort of broad identities, the ones I mentioned, but it could be something deeper. Like maybe you love education. Maybe you need, you really want to be self-reliant financially. Um, maybe your career is, is, uh, you know, a huge identity. And, so the thing is, we put so much of our energy and our thoughts and our time into, into, um, uh, sort of like making these identities thrive. We want so badly for them to thrive. Um, and when they're not thriving, we often go into dysfunctional patterns. We can, um, uh, start a really negative script in our head. You know, we can start shaming other people. We can feel shameful about ourselves. Um, uh, we can maybe start manipulating people in very slight ways to like, oh, no, no, come back. I, I, you know, I really want this marriage to work out or I really want my child to behave in a certain way or no, I really want, you know, the leaders to, uh, you know, to, to like not rock this identity that I've got going on here. Um, and so we can feel great anger and great, um, disappointment or just great unhappiness in general when one of those identities is not thriving. Um, and so um, I I used to very, very much value marriage and motherhood. Um, those were two massive identities for me and they weren't working out. And I absolutely was going into dysfunctional patterns and had zero self-worth because see here, the thing is our self-worth is often tied around the necks of these identities. And so if the identity isn't thriving, oftentimes the self-worth is totally on the rocks. Um, and so that was me. And I, um, um, here's, here's uh, something that's interesting. Uh, we often call our dysfunctional behavior love. Okay. Let me explain. <laughs> so here I was, I wasn't able to have a baby. 
And I went into very dysfunctional, dysfunctional modes um, because I loved the idea of being a mother. I loved my unborn children. I loved this idea of having a family and having a child with my husband. And so out of love, I used to think, out of love, I, I'm now in despair because I don't get to experience this. Um, and my spiritual mentor uh, is actually um, the one who pointed out to me that that was that could not be further from love. That was closer to dysfunction. My my behavior, my response to the situation, the grief, that's just absolute despair that I was in for years, um, the pain, the jealousy of other women, the worthlessness, all of that, the horrible script in my head, the lack of purpose. All of those things were closer to dysfunction and, um, and that, and she, she taught me like, listen, Hey, listen, you know, if you really wanted to be a good mother, if you really valued your unborn children, then you actually might, um, well, she said, you know, you're fixing up to teach them how to respond to life in the way you are. You are, you know, you have, uh, like, you're not whole without these kids and you're going to now teach them that they can't be whole either, that their, that their wholeness is based on circumstances. And that was the biggest frying pan to the head. I just, I, that was such an awakening to me. And, um, at that point I decided to try and truly be a woman of love and truly offer love to these unborn children or offer love to my husband um, and what that looked like was, was saying, Hey, you know, children in heaven, I love you. Um, my happiness is no longer wrapped around your head. Um, you know, you don't need to make mommy happy. Uh, mom is going to get her wholeness and her peace and her happiness elsewhere so that I can offer it to you so that I can teach you how to be whole. Um, so, you know, um, you know, no longer are responsible for my wholeness. I release you, you know, I release you from having to please me and I take you out of the pressure cooker. You know, we put people in the pressure cooker, um, because we want so badly for these identities to thrive. And so it's like, Oh, you know, you better do this or that so that this identity that I value so much can thrive. We do this in, in marriages like crazy. Um, spouses will put pressure on each other um, in hopes that it will allow their identity of being a wife or having a loving marriage. They, they want those identities to, to thrive. And so um, we put this immense pressure on other people and we demand that other people provide us with our happiness and our worth and our wholeness. Um, and it's the most unloving thing we could ever do. <laughs> so anyway, um, so, you know, sort of making that major shift, um, away from, uh, relying on circumstances and people for my wholeness and going into finding my wholeness from within and from above. That was, that was just one of the most, um, yeah, that concept is, is one thing that we absolutely try to teach to people, um, yeah. And, you know, if, if I were to kind of summarize what Mara said, the, the shortest version of saying that to me would be realizing that looking for happiness from the outside in 
is and always will be a futile attempt. If happiness is ever to occur, it has to come from the inside out. There must be a change that comes from the inside out or you'll never find it. And if you look, you know, if I, if I apply this more to the, the Mormon mindset, if you, there's a parable to me that means, uh, that I just love in terms of its ability to explain in an image that we can all grasp really well. And it's Jesus's ultimate, uh, sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the parable of the wise man and the foolish man and the difference between building on a rock or building on sand. And the truth of the matter is, with these lesser identities that Mara is talking about, and sometimes people even get offended just calling marriage, for example, a lesser identity, calling Mormonism a lesser identity, calling parenthood, motherhood, or fatherhood a lesser identity. You, you kind of, in your mind, you want to immediately say, well, no, shouldn't I be getting my worth from these things? This is the most beautiful thing in my life. And the reality is all of those They're outside-in methods of getting worth and happiness. And because of that, they are, by their very nature, sand. They're absolutely incapable of supporting our house of faith and our house of individual inherent worth. Because I don't care how wonderful your marriage is. I happen to have a beautifully wonderful marriage right now. But if I were to look to Mara to be the one to provide my wholeness and happiness in any way, shape, or form, the truth of the matter is I'm bound to be disappointed. Tonight, tomorrow, sometime during this week, she's not going to be on her A-game. She might treat me in a way that's a little bit sharp or short, uh, unappreciative in any way, shape, or form. And if I were looking to my wholeness from the outside in, from Mara, well, then my only possible reaction is to get defensive when she's that way and to protect myself and to try to get her to validate my outside-in way of looking at things. But like I said, Mara truly is sand. I can't look to her for that. She's incapable of providing the sturdiness that any of us, and, and you can think of your own spouse and you can think of your children. And when you realize that there's nothing in this world that is stable, and how ludicrous it is for us to look to all those things for some sense of identity and self-worth, then we can begin to make a shift. And this is what Jesus is saying all along. He's saying, seek ye first kingdom. Seek ye first relationship with God, and everything else that's needful will be added unto you. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When thy eye is single, thy whole body is full of light. All these images that Jesus uses to try and help us understand how important it is to connect to the kingdom of God that is within us. That is his ultimate message. And in fact, he's the perfect example of it. Were Jesus to base his worth, his value on the way that other people treat him, on the circumstances of his life, on whether or not people respect, admire, want to follow, reject, on and on, um, he would have been a miserable, miserable man. And yet all along, he's trying to say, I get everything I am from the Father, and that is the source of my love. My wholeness from the inside out and from above is the reason I can say to you who are killing me, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. He's on a rock. 
And he's trying to point us to this idea of building on a rock. And identity is that first piece for us. And so that's what we talk a lot about is what does it mean to be looking to all the wrong sources? And can we finally come to the conclusion that even the things we treasure most in this life, they're all sand. Even if you had the most perfect marriage for every single day, one day your spouse is going to die. One day your spouse is going to die. And then what? Where will your wholeness come from then? So no matter what, you can't look to these things. And our insistence on doing so is the root of all of our dysfunction. It's why Buddhists talk about the idea of detachment. And from a Western perspective, we all hear the word detachment and we immediately recoil and we go, you want me to be detached from my spouse, from my children? You're nuts. That sounds awful. Detachment to them isn't pulling yourself away. It's not looking to them as a rock. Uh, Buddhism doesn't have the concept of a personal God, but they do have one great truth that underlies all others. And that is everything changes. Their great truth is everything is sand, which is why you can't look to it, which is why you must detach your worth, your identity from it. Then, then, and only then can you offer true love and wholeness. That is really beautiful. I want to ask the two of you, you know, somebody comes to you, right? They're in this place where you guys were at at one time where things aren't going well, lots of dysfunction. They're, they're certainly, um, ready to make changes. They, they're open. They just need this piece. How long of a process is it? I mean, obviously there's things you guys are probably, you know, doing day in and day out, but if somebody comes to you and says, I just, you know, how long is it going to take me? to kind of get my mind wrapped around this and to begin kind of implementing these ideas that I can begin to see an effect. Um, your thoughts on how long it took each of you and and how long it takes for those who who are looking to these principles to try to make changes? I love that question, Bill. Um, I, I think it can happen very quickly for someone if they are ready and if they're willing to try something, to try something new. Um, the thing is we have, we all have this conditioning that is so thick. Um, you know, our parents did things a certain way. Um, they responded to, to life in a certain way. We have responded to life in a certain way for ages. And so, um, you know, so I, I don't think a, a transformation or a change in someone's pattern is, is just going to fall into someone's lap. I think it's a very deliberate thing yeah. that people have to do. Um, and it's because they want to change course. They want to try something different. And um, if someone has the desire and the willingness, um, honestly, I think things can really get moving quickly. And, and all it takes is some practice. It takes someone saying, I will do something differently. Um, just even once and I'll see what happens. Um, and so we always challenge people to ask for an experience, to ask for an experience where they can practice um, aligning with a new identity. And the identity that we always talk about is, is the identity of being a woman of love or a man of or love. a, or a woman of God. Um, um, and basically it's, it's a woman who is, is trying to align with virtues Instead of a woman who's concerned about holding up all these other identities on the pedestal, it's more about, I want to be a woman of love and I want to see how I can respond 
to my life? How can I respond to all these areas of my, of my life with love and with virtue? And so we challenge people to just ask for an experience in their life, um, you know, that day or that week, uh, where they can, um, experience, uh, responding to their life in a different way. Can they actually make a shift? Can they align with a virtue that aligns them with God or with love? Um, in response to their life. And we've seen people do it in 24 hours. They blow um, our minds. And so they it happened really to do. me within a day. You know, when my mentor asked me to ask for an experience, I did it. And there is power in asking because you are saying, I am ready. I am willing. I am not afraid of what comes along. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to practice being a woman of love. Cause see, here's the thing. Um, when you're aligned with these lesser identities, everything out there could possibly threaten your, your lesser identity. You're oh always... no, this, oh no, this threatens my marriage. Oh no, this threatens my Mormon identity. Oh no, this threatens my family or my children or my motherhood or whatever. Um, and so you're constantly battling these threats and, and going into this negative space and negative self-talk. Um, but as a woman of love, if that's your guiding, your guiding, um, light every day, if that, if you wake up and you're, you're putting your energy and your time into being a woman of love, everything actually begins to work in your favor. Um, there's no fear because every experience is an opportunity for you to practice what you're here to do, to practice being a woman of God or a woman of love and, and actually you know, getting better and better at doing that. It's beautiful. And and if that's what you want, then again, every experience is a beautiful opportunity yeah. for you to do that. Jesus, so, you know, Jesus's entire Sermon on the Mount is about exactly that. You know, he's saying, I want you to learn how to, he, he's, he's almost talking about being grateful. There's a number of apostles that also say, be grateful when afflictions come. Praise God when, when you fall into many temptations or diverse afflictions. Um, and Jesus is saying, you know, if you can learn how to pray for those, which what what's that? That's turning to a virtue in the face of persecution, abuse or something. If you can learn how to pray for those who despitefully use you, then then you'll know your father. And over and over again, he's, you know, well, let me go in a different direction really quick and return to the question that you had time. For me, um, I think time is absolutely irrelevant. I recognize that it that it does take time for some people, I would never dream of setting any kind of time limit or suggestion for what it takes to experience it. I think Mara's, um, I think Mara's right. You have to be ready. I remember the, the first time I began to question this idea of time and how long does it take was actually it started right after the night that my wife confessed that she'd been unfaithful. And I remember hearing in my mind um, the words of Viktor Frankl because I'd read uh, Man's Search for Meaning every year for five years because I loved the book so much and I knew somehow that it was a key to how I wanted to live life. So she's telling me what had happened. And in my mind, while she's speaking, I begin to hear these words. And it's, Danny, you don't always get to choose your circumstances, but you always get to choose how you'll respond to them. And how you respond will be infinitely more important to your experience of this moment than the circumstance itself. In that moment, I made a conscious choice 
on how I would respond to the situation. And my wife, I remember her saying the words, uh, do you think you'll ever be able to forgive me? And that was the first moment that I kind of had a chance to say something. And after hearing those words of Viktor Frankl in my mind, I already knew, Danny, virtue is the way that you want to handle this. This is somebody who is clearly in a tremendous amount of pain. She's not happy about what happened. She's crying. She's been miserable, and you didn't know why for the last couple of months. Um, and I just remember saying and meaning it, you're forgiven already. What do we need to do to move on? And I don't want to suggest that I never had a moment where I didn't, where, you know, where I didn't feel that way. Of course I did. I had all my, all those lesser identities came back to me all the time. What are the lesser identities that I would have had? It's, you know, what it means to fulfill the great Mormon role. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I suddenly worried that my patriarchal blessing, which says that I was going to be a leader in the church and I assumed that I was going to be a bishop and then a stake president. I've always wanted to be a mission president, not for recognition or anything, but because I loved my mission so much and I loved what my president did for me. It's like I want to give that back. So I remember having, you know, these great ideas, these these. Oh, they're so amazing. Right. These wonderful identities that I wanted fulfilled. Uh, I remember looking at my wife at times and going, she's ruined all of it. She's ruined every single bit of it. And kind of like Mara was saying earlier, of course, I'm going to be mad. Of course, it's I'm justified. Nobody would think that I'm not justified to respond differently. But I didn't do that in that first moment. And as often as I could, I returned back to the need to pursue sincere virtue as my response to everything that was going to come up after that. And those dark moments come regularly. Our identities get attacked regularly. And we do build some muscle memory. Um, when you begin to do this in one small way like I did, and I, I guess I don't even want to call it small, it was huge. It was huge for me. But when I did it that one time, and I actually experienced an immediate sense of calm, when I went to compassion, love, and forgiveness instead of doubt, fear, and anger, and shaming, and grudge holding, immediately my world was better in the present moment. And so powerful was that experience. That's the reason why I don't want to say time. Oh, it's going to take you, it's going to take you three months. It's going to take you six years. I hesitate to do that because I think it is such a present moment experience. And when we go to that place, it can happen so fast. And then it begins to provide the fuel for going back to that over and over and over again, which is why Mara said, ask for an opportunity. Every single one of us is going to have something. If we're, if we find ourselves on edge right now with the church policy and the way that people are responding to it, then there's your opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's going to show up 20 times a day on Facebook. Somebody's going to push your button. Somebody's going to make you want to vent to a friend or they're going to want to make you write a comment. See if one of two things can happen. Can I in any way, shape or form develop actual compassion and understanding for this person? Doesn't mean I agree with them. Doesn't mean I condone what they're doing or saying. I can think that what they're doing is dangerous, but can I speak to them and of them in my mind in the same way that Jesus speaks to the people killing him? Can I go to that place? And if I can't, can I at least make it so that what would have been a three hour annoyance, can I turn that into an hour long? 
Can I reduce the amount of time I spend in a dysfunctional place? And when we learn how to do that, time becomes irrelevant. It literally is irrelevant to the healing process. The only reason it's relevant is for some of us, it takes us 10 years to get to a place where we can look at something compassionately. And for some of us, we might go there immediately. Time is not the factor, but returning to virtue and the principles of godliness is the factor. And I mean, in fact, just one of Mara's favorite ways of looking at the atonement and mine as well is, you know, we've all heard people break it down at one meant. And I already think that's a powerful way to do it. But what are you doing when you choose compassion, kindness, patience, Virtue, any virtue. When you choose virtue, you are at oneing with a God who I happen to believe is the perfect possessor of all of those things. He embodied them. You know, Jesus Christ embodied every single one of those virtues endlessly. And that's why we praise him. And if we keep on thinking that the atonement is about something that Jesus did for us that we can't do, and, and, and there is that portion, there's a place for that in the atonement. But if we always put godliness off onto Jesus, then we rarely, if ever, will come to the place of mirroring that that spiritual experience and truly at wanting with a God who possesses what it is that you're trying to embody. And when you do, peace flows automatically. Jesus said, there's this awesome scripture that I love, give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, good measure, shaken together, running over, and I'm, you know, mixing up some of the order of that, it shall be poured into your lap in that manner. And that's what I feel, that's how I feel virtue, that's what I feel virtue does for us. When we can authentically go there, when we give it, something comes back to us, and it doesn't come back because the circumstance necessarily changes. And it doesn't come back to us because the person that we're loving suddenly begins to love us. When when Paul says that love never fails, I believe he's saying love charity. never fails. Yeah, charity depends on which version of the scripture you're using. But when he says charity never fails, he's I don't think he's saying charity never fails to um, bring back a wayward child. Charity never fails to change a spouse. Charity never fails to um, to improve a work situation. There are so many instances in which charity will fail as evidenced by the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But where charity never fails is the possessor, the one who owns it, who lives it, who chooses it, who responds with it. And when they do, they're vibrating at the exact same frequency as God. And you can't separate peace when that's happening. So Bill, i um, just, I thought I'd go back to the time issue for a second. Um, so when I, when I myself asked for an experience, um, you know, <laughs> I did that at probably 1 PM and then at like 10 PM that night, a massive experience came to me. It was actually one of the most challenging experiences in my marriage. And, um, and it was the surprise and I wasn't expecting it. And, it, uh, you know, initially I just felt red from head to toe with like anger and, you know, just disgust or pain or self, you know, worthlessness and, and all that conditioning came back to me, you know, uh, for a second. And then I thought, no, this is my opportunity. I asked for this and 
because I asked for it, I, I was, I, I felt that, uh, you know, an added strength to follow through and to try to align, um, with being a woman of love and trying to align with virtue in that moment. And so I did it. Um, we always say in those moments when, when something is coming to you and the lesser identity identities are screaming at you, um, we just say to be still, to be still for a moment, for a day, whatever it takes, an hour, be still. And that alone is incredible because you are taking your power back in that moment. You were stopping the knee-jerk automatic reaction and you are reclaiming your power to choose and to be in charge of your state of being. And so I was still and I was able to collect my thoughts and then the next thing is to see if you can pursue a virtue. That is where freedom lies. That is where light lies. That is where just, you know, your absolute deliverance can take place. And so I, in that moment, um, decided to pursue love for this person. And um, what's so beautiful is when you are able to... Um, bring virtue to a circumstance, you no longer see the other person as an object. So um, they're no no longer threatening. Normally an object is something that you want to manipulate and change and no, 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 don't do that because it's threatening my marriage. Don't do that because it's threatening my wifehood. It's threatening my worth. You know what I mean? Please stop doing what you're doing. And we start shaming and we start mistreating and we start um, loathing people and loathing ourselves, you know, because we this identity is 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 failing us. And um, and so anyway, in that moment, um, you know, when you pursue virtue, when you align with being a woman of love or a woman of God, you are able to stop seeing other people as objects and you're bringing virtue to them and um, you're able to see their humanity. You're able to treat them as a human being who has worth as well. And um, and so uh, in that moment, I was able to do that. I was able to offer love. I was able to see another person's humanity and I was able to see that they were suffering um, whatever the behavior was, it was due to their suffering, which, you know, allowed me to just feel just absolute compassion for this other human being. No longer was my worth on the line. No longer was my worth tied around the head of this other person. No longer was their mood or their behavior responsible for my self-worth. I was getting that on my own, and therefore I was able to freely offer love from a place of wholeness. And to me, that is the example that Jesus Christ is trying to teach us that those, you know, are his last beautiful, most amazing words from the cross. Father, forgive them for they not know not what they do. Like that man was able to be whole and offer the highest form of love to another human being. He saw their humanity. Yeah. When, when, when you know your inherent worth and you're trying to build on that, you can more easily recognize the inherent worth in another human being and your need to respond to their dysfunction with dysfunction diminishes. And when you're not responding with dysfunction, the likelihood 
of a positive ex- experience happening suddenly goes through the roof because you're not going to attack their lesser identities now. You're not going to call them bigoted, stupid, ignorant. You're not going to do any of those things that would cause them to do the only thing they possibly could do because they have a lesser identity on the line as well. They want to be seen well. They want to be right. They want to. And when you're not going to play that game, it doesn't guarantee that the other person's going to join you in a better way of responding and conversing about something as sensitive as we're seeing now. But it provides an incredible opportunity for something totally different to happen. And I guess actually a really good example of that is the post that Mara wrote about shifting away from Mormonism on her blog. Uh, she didn't do it. She didn't write about that by attacking anybody else's stance. She didn't uh, say anything negative. It was all framed in a positive way of connecting more to this internal journey. We did not get a, hardly any negative we, comments. We had, I don't know, probably close to 300 responses through Facebook, emails, uh, blog, comments, whatever. And I'm telling you two. Two of them. Bill, two people responded with some negativity. That's and a lot different of than my Facebook came, page. Well, I yeah. know. Well, <laughs> and one of those came like, you know, over a weekend, you know, like a, yeah, week, a week later, like more than a week after I had even posted it. So we, I mean, uh, you know, when you bring wholeness to the table, it doesn't threaten. Like you're not. There's um, no need to attack anybody else in order to make the point. If you don't feel threatened, then you, you're not causing other people to be threatened as well. Because anyway, normally it's like the battle of the identities. You know, we're like going back and forth, battling out our identities. And of course, we've all seen that on Facebook. Who's it's right? Who's Facebook the better Mormon? In the last two weeks. You know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's that to me is one of the most powerful things is is realizing that it really does all come back to identity. It's the reason why Mara and I won't do anything without talking about that, because if we don't get that part under control, if we don't realize how dysfunctional it always is to look to any human being, especially if it's on Facebook and it's general open discussion, but if we're, if we don't realize how dysfunctional it is to look to any human being for the validation and wholeness that can only come from something way more sturdy than that, then all these dysfunctional cycles just continue endlessly. So Learning identity, learning what it means to tap into that, which is why you got to ask for an experience. You need to figure out what it means to respond independent of a circumstance or behavior. And when you do, suddenly that inherent part of you that all of us have, it suddenly begins to go, yep, I'm here. I was here all along. I was capable of offering relief all along. You have to do that. And when you experience it, it kind of snowballs. I, I want to kind of wrap up, and you've given me a lot to kind of chew on. I want to see if I can kind of break this down a little bit. Um, obviously, if, and I'm pointing kind of at myself. My soul my soul wants peace. I mean, there's the, the angst, the, the migraines, the high blood pressure. I mean, all those things are tied up in this. This I, We've talked about these identities, and I'm going to stammer and stutter my way through this. Hopefully, I can maybe take five minutes here and kind of... Yeah. Lead the listeners through this story so that maybe then you can provide an answer on where we all go from here. But these identities, one of the identities I have is that I'm going to go ahead and be the buffer. I'm going to be the, the guy who gets punched in the face for everybody else as I deal with kind of not letting people hurt others and I'll be the one who takes the brunt of that. And, and part of me likes that. 
part of me wants right. to be the guy who stands up for others and takes the licking for them. Um, but also mm-hmm. at the same time, that's not healthy. And one can do that for only so long before one essentially just falls apart themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I've got lots of these little identities as you were telling stories of, you know, telling the scenarios of, of a husband or a wife and how we deal with our children and how we deal with our spouse. I find myself in, in essentially all of those where I want to control situations because I want my kids to, to look to the na- you know, the neighbor, I want my neighbor to look at my kids and say, man, that guy is really doing a great job as a parent, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. or I want my wife to make me feel loved, right? And, right. and we do all of these things. And mm-hmm. when it comes to Mormonism, I mean, I'm, I'm on Facebook, I'm on all this social media, I'm putting out podcast episodes. And I know that every single thing I record, it, and part of it is I have to learn to, come from the angle you guys do where you're saying things in such a way that nobody wants to, you know, curl their hands up into a fist. But part of me wants to kind of shake people. Like, like the only way I feel like you can wake people up is to say, to shake them and say, look, don't you get it? You're hurting somebody. But I also recognize that in doing that, I'm also hurting them. Mm. And, and so some of the things you're speaking to are really deep. And so I guess I want to maybe end on this kind of a note. There's 25,000 listeners that listen to this podcast and a large chunk of them feel the same way. They're just, they feel mm-hmm. like they're being beat up. They feel like they're doing a lot of beating and it's, and they're just tired of it. And they just want to get to this place where they can still hold their ground, but do it in a way that's not damaging to both them and the person that they're talking to. And so your thoughts, you know, for me and for anybody else who wants to to kind of look further into this, what is the next step? What are things that we can do? What are things that you guys provide? What are what are places that you know? Can we can we solve this whole problem by reading your entire blog, or or are there other <laughs> things that you guys do that that at least we should ponder on and think about and and see if it's something that's a good fit for us? I'll just throw it in your corner. Uh, yeah. Where's Bill Real and and whoever else is out there? Where do they go from here? You know, um, one of the first things that comes to my mind, uh, and, and this is a distinction that we almost always have to make whenever we teach every single time we do a retreat and we're talking about these principles, somebody always asks, and I'm glad they ask, well, wait, doesn't that mean I'm going to get walked all over? What, what do I stand for? Where do I draw boundaries then? Uh, because sometimes if you're stressing the idea of responding to everything with virtue, uh, then the response, then the, what people think is, well, that means that I'm going to have to just be a silent, you know, a passive receiver of all of this negativity. And I, I couldn't feel more differently about that. What I think, um, we need to do, and I'll, I'll use an example. Um, I'll use an example from the civil rights era, which I think is very powerful. So Martin Luther King and and Malcolm X, uh, for most of their lives, had a very different approach to a common problem. Uh, Martin Luther King was defined by his insistence on people pursuing their goal with a heart at peace, with love at the core. And it's actually really cool if you if you search online for the form that Martin Luther King you know, basically made everybody sign if they were ever going to participate in any of the marches. Uh, the way that he stresses the idea of being and embodying the love of Jesus to never responding to violence with violence, 
to remembering that it is not ourselves that we are liberating. We're liberating them from any of their hatred or ill will. We're liberating them from the dysfunction of, of treating a, an entire class of people as less than. And so every ounce of his movement was, was totally organized by this idea of loving your fellow man and walking in the truth that you have worth and that you can stand for that peacefully. And Malcolm X kind of takes a, a, a different role for most of his, um, life and it's, and it's much more violent. It's the defensive, uh, fighting version of things. And they both affected change. We can never take from either of them that one of them affected change and the other one didn't. But it really boils down to when we stand up, when we make comments, when we will not allow something to happen, things to be said about a group or a people or a, or a doctrine, um, because we know that it hurts. The question is, can we stand up with love at the core? Can virtue be the guiding principle behind the response? Um, there's, there's a great book that I've loved, uh, called The Anatomy of Peace by the Armiger Institute. They spend the entire book talking about the difference between a heart at war and a heart at peace and how you can do things that wouldn't, you know, they, they use this example of a, of General Saladin, I think. He's one of the greatest Muslim generals. He's one of the greatest army generals in the history of the world. And they use him as, as an example of somebody carrying out actual war but doing it with a heart at peace. The second that he conquered a city, he immediately allowed for all kinds of compassion and things that nobody would ever dream of if your goal was to conquer and objectify human beings. Even when at war, he viewed the people he was at war against as people worthy that have inherent worth, that he has no desire to take down, to, to brutalize in any shape, way, you know, or form. And I think that's a big part of it is learning how to respond. So I'll just give you a quick example. I'm, I'm by no means silent. I currently teach, uh, I teach institutes on Saturdays. I teach a gospel doctrine class for the YSA on Sunday. And every single class I am bringing up, uh, sometimes some of these hard issues down here, a lot, they don't catch a lot of the things that somebody in the U.S. is going to catch. Things aren't translated. Things don't make the same waves. So I, I don't feel the need to bring up a lot of things that might be going on elsewhere. But I always bring up uh, ways in which people are unloving. I always bring up the idea of lesser identities. But my goal is never to tear somebody's identity down just for the sake of ruining it and showing them how wrong they are. I have one goal, one single objective. And it's to show just how useless all of those identities are and why we need to seek God. If we were to allow that kind of, if our goal was always to point to the rock, if our goal was always to point towards that, I think a lot of these conversations that we have would go a lot better. I regularly teach um, about really not liking the doctrine, the prophet can never lead us astray. I think that's, uh, I think that's like, one of those competition level sandcastles that you'll see when you, when you see, you know, when you see these, uh, displays of sand art, the security of the church to always do the right thing or the leaders to always do the right thing when acting in unison. That is such a powerful illusion. And boy, does it feel good to these 
to this ego-based, natural man-based identity that wants security from the outside in. Thank goodness I belong to the right group. Thank goodness I have the people who will never lead us astray. There is such an amount of outside-in security and validation that comes from that that anybody who reads church history will find in just a few seconds cannot stand up to the weight of that validation that you're looking for. But whenever I talk about it, I don't talk about it with the purpose of making them suddenly distrust or hate the church. We just talk about it as a matter of fact, and then I say, and this is why you must learn to look to God. You're going to have to do the inward journey. So that's at least part of my response, and I know Mara's been thinking of something too. I would say um, that Bill and, and and to really all of your readers, my heart just goes out to you so much because... I know that, um, you know, when we try to hold up these lesser, lesser identities, it is absolutely exhausting. Yeah. I know of nothing that can drain us to the core more than waking up every day and trying to keep these, these identities afloat. Um, and the result is often anger because it's not going to work out. We can never, ever, you know, have those identities up on, you know, floating high in the sky as long as we want them to maybe for a moment, maybe for a month, maybe for a year, but it, it never will last and, and be permanent. And so oftentimes the result is anger. Um, and so I would say if, if anyone feels that anger, um, that is actually a beautiful signal. <laughs> this is a, um, it's honestly like, um, a, a, a waving flag that just says, you know what, this area of your life needs some attention. This is like a cancer growing. This anger or this pain or whatever it is that you're experiencing is is like an, a, an infection. Um, and it would be foolish to ignore it. Um, infections uh, spread. They affect Everything they affect, you know, anger, for example, will affect your marriage. It will affect your children. It will affect your job. It will affect the way you interact with people. It will infect your heart rate and your migraines and your very cells. They, I, I think our cells don't even, they won't even have the energy they need to, um, to perform their duties because we're literally so drained and exhausted. We have like spent all of our energy. Um, and so, um, again, that feeling of pain or anger is, is a, is a beautiful signal that's letting our, our soul and our spirit and our body know that it's time to address the infection. It's time to take care of this. Um, and, you know, if, if there's a feeling of anger, um, or a feeling of hate or fear, um, uh, the way to uproot that is to pursue a virtue. I know of nothing else that can uproot anger more than pursuing love. Um, you know, uh, and the pursuit of that, I mean, basically you can't pursue anger and love at the same time. You can't pursue anger and acceptance at the same time. And so it's one or the other. And the minute someone decides, you know what, I want to try to align with love, um, the heart rate actually slows down. And 
a smile might even like your, your whole energy just literally transforms. It actually brings greater energy and light to your life. Um, it improves your marriage and improves your children, it improves every situation around you. Of course, not always. I'll say certainly, certainly if you change, that doesn't mean everything else lines up. But if it is going to line up, it will be in an environment of love and light. I do believe that change would be amazing for the church. And, um, and I actually, I actually love, you know what? Secretly, I kind of, I mean, I am heartbroken for every family that's affected by this policy, um, which is people who have gay, you know, gay people in their family and then people who just want to honor humanity. I mean, it's affecting everyone. And, um, but, but also secretly, I love what's happening because it is, um, allowing people to dig deeper and to have awakenings and to use their voice and to, um, uh, think independently um, so I, I love that that's happening. It is, it's a major shift. Um, it's a new thing that I think is happening on deeper levels. I've never seen this in the church before. Um, you know, it hasn't gone, it has, I mean, this isn't just a fringe issue. This is like affecting universal, very faithful members of the church at deep levels. And so I, I love this, this unsettling time, um, because it's, it's um allowing people i mean it's this opportunity when we're talking about opportunities this is an opportunity for people to learn how to um again think for themselves but also how like how can i be a, a woman or a man of god what what is that and and am i doing that and is the church doing that and are my neighbors doing that and how can we all get back to that that's what really matters um, and that is a, you know, a much higher path. And I think anyway, this experience of feeling anger and all of the, all of the emotions of this, this is an opportunity to, to see if you can align with virtue, to see if you can heal your soul of the anger and the pain. And can I, you know, can I bring a greater, can I, can I align with, with virtue and, and in the process become more enlightened and experience more divinity? Um, and so I, I would just say to everyone to, to, uh, welcome this experience. Um, this is historical. <laughs> this moment is incredible and we get to determine uh, we get to choose exactly how we play this out. No one makes us angry. Yeah. You know, the church doesn't make us angry. We choose it. We choose the outcome of our life. We choose the outcome of our experience and we choose what we pass on. And so I would encourage everyone to begin aligning with virtue. See if you can, um, get creative and, and see how you can bring virtue to conversations with the family, conversations with ward members, conversations with leaders. Um, and can you see other people's humanity? Um, you know, when you yourself are no longer threatened by someone else, you can begin to see their humanity. 
And this goes for Orthodox members or people who are leaving the church or people who have opposing views. Yeah. We need to see not only only the humanity of the people we're trying to defend, but we want to see the the humanity of everyone. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's this, you know, there's this beloved image in the Book of Mormon experience of of uh, the anti-Nephi-Lehites. What do they do? They lay down their weapons of war. And I feel like that's a big part of what all of us need to learn how to do is to lay down our weapons of war. And for the most part, we use our words and we use, you know, we use these lesser identities to inflict pain on other people because we need them to validate us. We need them to respect. And so we we engage in this stuff. Um, there's a quote that I love by a non-denominational pastor named Dave Brisbane. He has a tremendous book called The Fifth Way. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it's one of Danny's like top two books I, in the world. <laughs> I could not possibly. I've learned more amazing things about Jesus reading this book uh, than, than pretty much uh, just about anything else. It's changed my view entirely on what his message was, and I love it. But so here's what Dave Brisbane says. He says, what is God's desire? We always want to know what God's will is, and we think that we have to go out and find it. We think he's playing hide-and-seek with his will. God is shouting his will from the rooftops in every page of Scripture and in every moment of our lives. His will is not a what for the plan, for the job, the house, the spouse, uh, or what we can accomplish, etc. God is saying, my will is the how. It's a way of doing all of the what's. He cares deeply how I do what I do. He gives us the ability to choose our what's, but how is the key. For those who decide that they need to speak up and stand up like you, Bill. Or for those who actually are shifting away from the church. Yeah. I mean, for anything. Yeah, if, you, if, if you're deciding you need to leave, if you're deciding you want to stay but don't want to ruffle the feathers or, or do something damaging, if you think it's damaging to your family, or if you need to speak up, um, those are all varying what's, but there can be a universal how, how you approach each of those, and that's what's going to connect you or not connect you to God. Awesome. Really appreciate all of this. This has been so much just for me personally, even if it was just you and, and the two of you and me just having a conversation and and the other 25,000 people didn't get a chance to listen in, uh, I would benefit greatly from this. It's just been good to kind of reflect on Perhaps some of the reasons why I'm inflicting on myself some of the anguish that comes in, in ways to kind of move through that. I, I want to put a lot of links up, uh, to the books that you've mentioned, uh, as well as things that people can do to help try to connect with you guys and to find out what you're doing. What are some of the places that people are interested in pursuing this further? What are some of the places that they need to visit or call or check out or, go to 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 get a better uh, idea of what's out there that they can begin to kind of uh, pursue this. Great. Oh, awesome, Bill. Thank you. Um so Danny and I host retreats. Uh this is something we've been doing for the last um year and a half and we started doing that here in Ecuador and then we've also done retreats in the US. So, um we've done 10, we've hosted 10 retreats and they have been amazing. I'm telling <laughs> you like amazing uh, life-changing for us all of our guests have just loved the experience um danny and i teach workshops and um 
with our retreats in Ecuador, which are seven days long, we, we do a raw food cleanse because we think health is so important and just like the gateway to like, uh, you know, tapping into like, I don't know, just your truest self. Like I think your health matters a lot. So anyway, I won't get into that, but, um, but we do, we do yoga and meditation and we have a, we have a spiritual healer at the retreat who does various, um, workshops and treatments with people. Anyway, it's absolutely extraordinary. So we have a retreat coming up in um, 2016. It's probably going to be in the spring. We haven't set the date yet, but you can um, you can follow us on our blog, which, which is um, a blog about love.com. Um, and then also Danny and I offer mentoring. Uh, uh, we've been doing that just as of a few months ago, but it is going so well. And we basically coach and mentor people as they're going through difficult experiences or, or just we're, we want to get in touch with people who are ready to make a change. And then we coach them through that process. Um, so recently we've actually been working with a lot of people who are, are facing challenges with, with, uh, religion and with family issues and, and it's been helping them greatly. So, um, uh, so you can see about our retreats and our mentoring on the sidebar of our of our blog. Yeah, so really it's a blogaboutlove.com, a blogaboutlove.com. <laughs> that A always gets left off when people type it in. Um, and we have a link to the, our, our events website, which also is where you can book mentoring. Um, and you can also reach us at Danny or Mara at a blogaboutlove.com. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> Anything else, Bill? And it really, actually, you know, I will say this. Uh, if there was one other thing on the sidebar of our blog, we're working on a redesign right now, and we hope one day it will be some of the stuff that is most important to us will be very accessible. But on the sidebar um, of the blog, there's a couple of basic labels and uh, probably some of the ones that are going to have posts that readers, especially on a spiritual journey, are going to appreciate most is uh, spiritual enlightenment as a link. The most impo- important things I've ever learned about love as a link, uh, overcoming trials. Those are I mean, they're all they all have lots of really good stuff in them. But uh, if, if, a, if a reader was to go there and just even take a look at the labels, they'll be able to pick out from what we've talked today. Uh, of what some of our key themes are and how we address them and how they can find out more. Yeah, this this episode couldn't have come, I think, more timely. There's just so much division and angst and, and uh, emotional capital being spent over the last couple of weeks that I think a lot of Latter-day Saints listening will say, you know, thank goodness this uh, this episode just came out and and people can kind of reach out and find some ways to to get centered again. Um I will just say that from my own perspective, a lot of the things you talked about tonight really hit deep with me and there are things that that I realize that on a psychological level that I hold on to with a death grip that I don't need to. And uh, really appreciate you phrasing things in a way that that encourages I think people like me who hold on to those identities as if they're just crucial to us. You did it in such a soft way that I felt I felt 
a loving desire to let those go and just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to both of you and, and thanks for staying up late tonight to, to do this and uh, just appreciate both of you being on the podcast and all that, uh, all that we discussed tonight. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much, Bill.